Being photographed by Annie Leibovitz is a sign you've made it to the top. Her Rolling Stone portraits of rock stars back in the 1970s are icons of pop culture. And she's the person they call on to photograph VIPs like Bill Gates, Queen Elizabeth, and President Obama. But her latest project comes from a road trip across America, and it doesn't include any faces at all. The photos in her latest book, Pilgrimage, put familiar places in a new light, from Niagara Falls to Graceland. And she takes us for an intimate glimpse into the world of some extraordinary people, like Emily Dickinson and Annie Oakley, Jefferson and Lincoln, Ansel Adams, and Georgia O'Keeffe. To actually walk into her studio in Abiquiu and see where she lived and worked, it moved me. It really did move me to tears. Annie Leibovitz is our special guest in the hour ahead. Plus, we share travel tips for exceptional adventures of our own. I'm Rick Steves, and I'm glad you could join us. It's Travel with Rick Steves. It could be the ultimate photo journal of a road trip pilgrimage. The woman who's famous for her close-up and personal photographs of the icons of our age gets close-up and personal with us in just a moment on Travel with Rick Steves. Annie Leibovitz tells us about her latest project, and it's a revealing departure from her portrait work. And later in the hour, we'll open the phones to check in on your travel plans. I would imagine the most celebrated photographer of our generation is Annie Leibovitz. And when we think about Annie Leibovitz, we think about Rolling Stone. She shot 142 covers. She was the tour photographer for the Rolling Stones rock group. She worked at Vanity Fair. She mounted an exhibition at the National Portrait Gallery. And, of course, she's photographed the big personalities of our age, from John and Yoko to Nixon, Queen Elizabeth, and even the Obamas. Annie's new book is not about people. It's called Pilgrimage, and it's about the homes of great people. And she joins us now to tell us about her experience in this project. Annie, thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. <laughs> you know, when we think Annie Leibovitz, we think faces and uh, expressive bodies and so on. And this book, you page through it, there's really not a face in it. What was your goal with this book? Well, it really was a, an opportunity to sort of go down a different road. It was really an exercise in, in refilling myself back up. I, I was having a difficult time, and, you know, I just set out to look for emotional landscape. And it started with the photograph I did at Niagara Falls with my children sort of showing me the picture. And when I saw what came out of it, it was that picture at Niagara Falls and also the pictures that I took at Emily Dickinson's house in, in Amherst that sort of led me to believe that this would be an interesting journey to make a list of places that I've always been interested in or cared about or and just hit the road, go out on the road and, and see what emotionally uh, drew me in. Well, the cover of the book is certainly a kind of a minimalist hit-the-road shot, and it is powerful. <laughs> it's, it's just yeah. Niagara Falls, and it's the front and the back cover with the name of the book and your name on the spine in a collection of mostly homes and intimate little details about where mostly great Americans uh, lived and were inspired, why did you put Niagara Falls on the cover and the back cover of this book? Well, it was really emotional landscape, whether it was a place like Niagara Falls or Old Faithful or Yosemite Valley, which was really about Ansel Adams. Believe it or not, I, I sort of discovered Lincoln and Marian Anderson and Eleanor Roosevelt because I, I was thinking about you know, the Lincoln Memorial, which has always been my favorite, one of my favorite memorials. And so all these things, I fell into them sort of serendipitous. I mean, the original list was about, you know, only 12 places. And by the time I finished this, this work, there's about 27 places. But Niagara Falls, Niagara Falls is sort of a metaphor for me. I mean, first of all, I, I love the picture because my children Literally, we were on a day trip to Niagara Falls, and I was not having the, the best time because I was having difficulty uh, with business meetings and uh, other kinds of things. And, uh, and I was on the phone. I was being drawn away to talk on the phone. And, uh, and my children, they were having a, a pretty good time, and they, they just sort of waltzed over to the falls, and they were, they were mesmerized. They were looking at the falls, and I, I just felt like I wanted to go home. But I walked up you know, and stood behind them and, you know, looked over them and, and took a few pictures. And, and that's the cover of the book. So, hmm. you know, the falls, like any good Bob Dylan song, you know, it's either a beginning or an end. You know, you have to sort of decide, um, you know, what you want to make of it. I think what I love about the falls is that it's not taken from any special place. It's right on the walkway. That's what I was going to ask you. This is, everybody has this view, but the way you photographed it, it it's got a soundtrack of its own, even though it's just a photograph. Well, it's true. Um, 
with Yosemite too, which which I had this idea to go back to the Yosemite Valley, and I had worked on a Ansel Adams workshop in the '80s, and I remember stumbling across the the tunnel view, you know, a view uh, looking down the valley, and I remember thinking, oh my gosh, this is Ansel Adams' picture. This is, I guess, you know, almost anyone can take this picture. Yeah. And of course, when I went back for this project to try to photograph that valley, there's a humorous story in the book about you know trying to get the clouds, you know, over the valley, and I had to go back three times until I managed to get a picture that I that I liked. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Annie Leibovitz, and her new book is called Pilgrimage. Annie, you wrote, "I'm interested in how people live and how they do their work, and how you translate that visually." How did your subject, which was the intimate little looks at the way that people lived and where they lived and their views, how did that work for you? What I mean by that is when I um, do my portrait work, which does have people in it, you know, I, I'm looking for the same things. I'm looking, you know, for the chair that they sat in. I'm, I'm, I'm looking uh, for the view they looked out on. I've always been more interested in what people do and how they live more than necessarily who they are. So I, I don't really think of this work as being so different from my regular day-to-day work. It really is the note-taking involved. It's sort of the peripheral vision you have when you, um, when I go to take a portrait. There's a, a beautiful room in Valkill. Actually, it's Eleanor Roosevelt's bedroom, and, and it, it goes right out to a sleeping porch. And we don't build those in our in our homes any longer, but it's a room that's outside that connected to the house that someone can sleep. It's like almost being outside. And I just love the view right from her bedroom at, right out to the, the sleeping porch. And showing that sleeping porch, thinking it's not heated, and a great person like Eleanor Roosevelt actually slept there, it's giving an insight into their life. You know, for a good portrait, you have, and this is what you're so masterful at, is catching people at ease. How do you catch a home at ease? <laughs> you know, I I think that one of the reasons I started the project and, and decided it was a good idea was that I was looking for a place or something that that resonated in an emotional way that drew me in. And in some places, it didn't work. It didn't work at all. And I had to maybe dig deeper or just walk away from it. I I seriously was, was looking for Lincoln's log cabin because I got obsessed with Lincoln like, you know, everyone else does. I drove the whole heritage trail. I started at his boyhood home in Kentucky and then, I'm sorry, his birthplace in Kentucky to his boyhood home in Indiana and then on up to Springfield, Illinois. Couldn't find his, you know, an authentic log cabin, which apparently toured with P.T. Barnum, Hmm. and then found myself sort of, didn't quite realize I was doing this at the time, but when I went to photograph Pete Seeger's log cabin, um, I think it was sort of thinking that Pete Seeger was our our sort of modern-day Abe Lincoln. In that image of the of the trees that he cut and the humbleness of how he worked those corners together in his house, that photograph captures that just in a way that strikes me so vividly. He's an extraordinary man, Pete Seeger, and uh, he's the only living person in the book. And again, there's not a lot of rhyme and reason to that other than I've admired him so much, and I, as I said, I thought he was... Lincoln of the day. He huh? was like our Lincoln, you know. Yeah. Um, and to see his garage... His garage was so cool. Yeah, that's uh, there is a uh, a workshop in his barn that I couldn't help but photograph, and it's very filled with many many objects, and you know every little space is taken up with something. It's almost like looking through his ear into his brain. That's right, exactly. And his grandson told me that what he loved about P. Seeger's you know home was that you could put something down, and ten years later you could come back and <laughs> probably be in the same place. <laughs> Did you call it emotional landscape? Is that the term you used, Annie? I guess it's it would have to be imagery that resonated, that, that pulled me in, that, that, I, that I felt moved to take a picture without having to um, think about it too much, really. It's like intentionally no faces. I mean, I, w- I would have thought you'd put a face of the people featured, but then, on the other hand, to show Lincoln's gloves, it's almost good you don't have his face because you look at his gloves and, and you learn a lot about the exhaustion of being a great leader when they're almost worn out by having to shake hands. Those gloves actually were in his pocket the night he was assassinated wow. at, at, at the theater. Um, and there's actually, you know, there's a blood stain on, um, on one of the fingers. But you can really, what I loved about the gloves was that you feel like you're looking at his hands. Yeah. You know, you can, you can feel his hands on all the folds and the creases. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Annie Leibovitz, and her new book is Pilgrimage. 
Now, you talked about visiting a lot of homes, and some of them worked for you and others didn't. My thing is Europe, you know, and I visited a lot of homes in Europe, and a lot of them are just the homes of dead people, and, and they just are without spirit. But occasionally you walk into a home, and it's like they're still there. That's right. Uh, Salvador Dali's home is my favorite home, Salvador Dali, or Edward Grieg looking out over the fjords and thinking how he was inspired. You did a lot of traveling in the United States. Can you talk about a few places that, that really felt like the spirit was there? Well, I think Emily Dickinson's house, for sure, not not her house per se, but her brother's house was the first one that sort of led me into this, this journey period is that they hadn't really changed anything. I mean, the wallpaper was was riding off the walls. Uh, it was it was so Victorian. I had no idea what Victorian meant. It was very dark, and there were pictures hanging on every single you know, part of the wall. So that really um, moved me. I mean, I, I just, you could feel that they were there or, or had been there. Uh, there was a bedroom upstairs where Austin Dickinson's son had, had died and, and it just felt too eerie to walk mm. into it. You know, it's not that it was haunted exactly, but it, you just felt their their presence. It's almost like, like they just stepped out for lunch and, and <laughs> the brushes are at the easel or the pens on the desk or, or you take a peek at what are the contents in the drawer. I love that you've got a shot of somebody's drawer where you just, you're peeking into it. I think the heart of the book is probably the George O'Keefe set of pictures, only because on some level I, I had never really taken in George O'Keefe. You know, um, I grew up knowing about her and of course knew about her through Stiglitz and his relationship with her. But to actually walk into her studio in Abiquiu hmm. and, and, and see where she lived and worked, hmm. it, it really did move me to tears. It was very um, enlivening. There was probably one of the best pictures in the book is, is this photograph of her pastels, oh, yeah. uh, which she handmade. You can feel, like Lincoln's gloves, you can feel her, her fingers on those pastels. And the range of colors are definitely the... Uh, the palette, you know, from, from New Mexico. Did you light that or did you use existing light? I, I wanted to do everything in natural light because mm -hmm. that interested me with the digital work now. Mm -hmm. And if you look at uh, Emily Dickinson's herbarium, which is a picture of a plant specimen, a flower, that's done in natural light and it's just riveting the, um, the color, you know, in that flower that's dried up, you know, on the page. But for the, for the pastels, I... <laughs> you got me there because I shot <laughs> some of it in natural light and some of it with a little bit of a battery-powered mm. small tungsten light mm. added to the natural light. Stay with us as we discover more with Annie Leibovitz on Travel with Rick Steves. Her latest photo essay collection is in a coffee table-sized book called Pilgrimage. In it, she demonstrates how an observant eye can find talismans among the everyday objects and places that anyone can visit. And in doing so, she reveals something personal about the important people who've shaped our world. Then, later in the hour, we'll check in with you, our listeners, to share tips for your own adventures, pilgrimages included. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by the European Union Delegation to the USA. Tips about traveling in Europe and information about the EU are available at euintheus.org. Her close-up photos have a way of revealing more than meets the eye. Annie Leibovitz is our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Her latest photo collection contains no faces. But as only Annie can do, it captures the spirit of dozens of great people who are important to our culture. It captures that spirit through the places they lived and the objects that were part of their very lives. She's gathered those photos in a book called Pilgrimage. 
you did a lot of extremely close-up work, and I think extremely close-up has a has a great intimacy. I mean, you look at that close-up of Emily Dickinson's only surviving dress, and you can understand the the humbleness of the age and the loving stitching that went into that. I know it's so not my kind of picture, and I found myself uh, going in. It feels like a big responsibility to go that close yes. and try to explain yourself. Well, and to get that ace of hearts with the bullet hole right in the middle from Annie Oakley. That actually, it is a calling card that she, I mean, she she did shoot at targets that were made like an ace of hearts, right? right. But this is actually a calling card. It's okay. very small. You know, that's what I like about a lot of these shots, which are, I don't think of you in terms of extremely close-up work, and this book has a lot of great extremely close-up work, which gives you an insight. Well, again, they're notes. It's data. It's, uh, they're, they're notes. The caning on the bed, the frame and the caning of Thoreau's bed. Oh, that oh. is, I, I was just so thrown when I, when, when I saw. That's his bed in the cabin on Walden Pond. Is exactly. I mean, I, I thought he slept, you know, on, on the ground or, or on, on nails or something. I mean, that Thoreau had this very sophisticated, caned Chinese section from a, from a sofa bed. I can tell you liked it because it's, it's the one page, I believe, in the book that actually folds out, and that adds a lot of cost to a book, and it's worthwhile. Yeah, no, I'm not a... That's kind of a book joke to see the fold-out like that. So, you know, yeah. we've seen fold-outs <laughs> for all kinds of other things. Right. <laughs> so, so we're folding out Thoreau's bed. Thoreau's bed. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Annie Leibovitz about her new book, Pilgrimage. Annie, this is a travel show, and you did clearly you did a lot of traveling to put this book together. Um, just from a, a listener's point of view who's dreaming about traveling and... and wants to have an insight into some of the great homes or inspirational kind of landscapes we're talking about. What are three or four of the best homes that you'd recommend for people to be sure to put on their list? Well, Concord is sort of like a... Concord, Massachusetts is just sort of a, a hotbed of these writers who you know live together at the same time, Emerson and Thoreau and Louise May Alcott, and um, that's sort of an extraordinary place to go visit, and it's not far from Amherst. And there's several great places really close together then. So when you go to Concord... But, you know, that. I was just talking about this. I mean, it's <laughs> you don't have to go far. I mean, it's, right. you know, in New York City, it's like every block there's, <laughs> there's a historic home. I mean, you know, there are small you know house museums. And they're remarkably well-preserved. I mean, there's a lot of 19th century American history that's intimately preserved from the looks of your photographs. Is that accessible to, to every tourist? I mean, is every every photograph in this book is accessible? Absolutely, it is. I, I've found that there's a whole new movement in, in curating now, and the gatekeeping to this material is really being made accessible now. And most of these places, they either have tours or mm-hmm. uh, you can set up an appointment to go. You know, the spiral jetty is just sitting out there in Salt, <laughs> the salt <laughs> Lake. True, yeah. You know, it's it's not a... Well, as is Badlands night. is there. You don't need a ticket for Walden Pond, you know. <laughs> Annie, when you looked at all of these great and prolific people's homes, were you struck by how they decorated? I mean, do they put much energy into decoration, and does that give us much of an insight into their passion and their and their genius? That's that's a funny question because I, um, having visited Monk House, uh, where Virginia Woolf had a writing studio in the back, I was very fortunate they they left me alone in the writing studio to take pictures and. I took everything off of her desk and photographed the top of her desk. And it was like riddled with marks and you know, cigarette burns. And, and and then I went on to read. Uh, her husband, Leonard Wolf writes about how Virginia Woolf was extremely messy. So when you look at this desktop, uh, which I photographed, in fact, it was kind of almost near squalor, apparently, is, is what I understand. Uh, you don't quite take in when you go visit this house now, which is you know run by the National Trust, how they were really living, which was apparently pretty messy. But the desk sort of tells you that. The other thing I learned at, at Monk House was that, you know, I didn't quite take in having, of course, first run across Emily Dickinson's brother's house, which was kept intact, you know, um, even though the, the wallpaper was, 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 was falling off and things were, you know, rotting and decaying in the house. At, at Monk House... Um, the curator there told me that they decided to take the house back to the green period. And I you know, I didn't quite understand what that meant, but they it was quite beautiful. There Virginia Woolf painted her um her living room. It was all painted like this dark green. It was beautiful. I mean it there was some style there. It was definitely some style. The house that probably I didn't even want to go to this house because I it's so seductive and so 
so great. And I, I, I sort of feel like I'm not taking the pictures that the house sort of is really this great, which is Virginia Woolf's sister, huh. Vanessa Bell's house. She lived there with Duncan Grant, and, and it was the height of the Bloomberry period. And they painted all over the walls. And I have, I believe, four pictures inside the house. And I and I sort of feel, it's just sort of uh, the tip of the iceberg there. I mean, it's 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 such a beautiful, extraordinary living presence because they they were artists and they they created pottery and they painted their furniture and their walls and their fireplaces and it's it's just kind of amazing uh, that way. And just to be there, if if you have a, a creative spirit and to be in the space of somebody who you really admire, that in itself is like a pilgrimage. Actually, that's the name of your book, Pilgrimage. Exactly, yes. Well, you go to to Freud's house in, in London and you can't believe, you know, that it's it's left the way, you know, it was when, when he was alive. And, and there is the, the couch that, you know, he did all his analytical, you know, um, yeah. sessions on. It's still there. It's kind of interesting. So that's that's why the name of the book. Then you're going to these places, and it's like a, a pilgrimage, and it inspires one. I mean, it's kind of an eclectic mix. I mean, I also went to Graceland. I went to, uh, I had the opportunity to go to Ansel Adams' dark room, and to see the, the dark room still intact. And I, I did have the opportunity to photograph Ansel in that dark room uh, in the '70s. So to see the dark room still there, and and sort of photograph it as a shrine was that'd be a pilgrimage for you. Yes, it was. There's there's some photographers in here. <laughs> I like I like to play the piano, and I got to go to the little cabin on the fjord that inspired Edvard Grieg, and I got to see, you know, his piano and his view and his desk and the view that inspired him as he wrote. And, you know, for any sort of person who loves music, that would be a pilgrimage. But the still life of his tools on the desk was just... Mm. I'm getting goosebumps just talking about it right now. And the natural yeah. light that came in from the windows and then the fjords that inspired him... And then when you know his art, you close your eyes and you're right there. No, that's that's a great description of what can happen. I, I would imagine, well, just thumbing through uh, your book, Pilgrimage, the great views of great artists. For instance, Darwin's Sandwalk, where he would walk and I would imagine collect his thoughts. That was, that was very sweet because I had a hard time finding something from Darwin inside the house itself because it had been restored and also the the gift store was in the in, in his old office i mean at this point so the gift store in his office yes the gift store was in the office so you know it was a little um beyond beyond but i um that's like you know you know where where um monet painted his water lilies it's a great studio for an artist and now it's a huge gift shop it is a gift store that's correct it's you know, exact, exactly exactly kind of same thing so there's something <laughs> something that feels a little sacrilegious to me about about that but, you know, these places, they have to make their way. They have and to they make have their way. To... And, a, and a book like yours will encourage people to go there, and it's all part of our heritage, and it's it's worth um, helping them make it. Well, what I hope to encourage, you know, I, again, this was such a personal project. I, I, I'm surprised that anyone else is even, you know, looking at it or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. But but I, what I would like to encourage is is people make their own list and, and go off and, and whatever means something to them. And Talk a bit more about views, because one of my favorites in your book is the view of the garden designed by his wife from inside of Ralph Waldo Emerson. You know, because apparently he walked up to his bedroom and sat in a chair and, and died there. I I, I think, <laughs> I mean, the Emerson house was uh, was quite a house. I don't know if you know this or not, but Thoreau actually sort of, you know, helped run the house. and was almost like a babysitter there. And it was it was actually Emerson's woodlot that Thoreau built his cabin on Walden Pond. So for me, it was it was almost seeing that Emerson, as much as he talked about living outside or living, you know, or, or being one with nature, he was still behind behind windows. In other words, mm. he was looking out, hmm. not exactly behind bars, but it wasn't a clear uh, landscape like Walden Pond was for for Thoreau. I mean, he he talked. A lot, but he never like really was one with with nature. Never was was outside. So of all the of all the visits you made, what was the view that really struck you? Like, wow, I never realized this had such an impact on that person's spirit or creativity. Well, I think that the exercise in Yosemite was was an interesting um, trial because I I was with Gene Adams, Ansel's uh, daughter in law, and the first time I went into Yosemite. And we woke up in the morning. I was going to go out and photograph the valley. And there were no clouds in the sky. And Gene Adams said to me, well, Annie, um, you know, uh, 
Ansel would wait three weeks for clouds, you know. And and then she went on to say, and also, Annie, do you know, you know, some of those early landscape photographers used to borrow clouds from some pictures and put them in others. And of course, you know, I was like turning white because you know, I, do, I do this all the time in my <laughs> in my day job, you know. So then that sort of set me on this path that I wanted to get the valley with clouds in it. I went back actually 10 days before the book was supposed to be turned in. Anyway, it's a lot harder than it looks. <laughs> it's like, I thought it was, um, so it was, I had a great appreciation for, for Ansel's. When you go to that spot where you look down the valley, and of course, you know, it's it's still with us because of people like Ansel Adams who gave us these images, but um, it's a Mecca. I, I was never there by myself. There was always at least one photographer and then, the day I actually got the the picture I wanted, there were like maybe 50 or 60 photographers there. It is really a mecca for photographers. It's so beautiful. And when you get an Ansel Adams sky, I would suppose the photographers come out of the woodwork. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Annie Leibovitz about her new book, Pilgrimage. Annie, we looked at all of these people's homes and so on, and I'm wondering if Annie Leibovitz was going to go to the home of the woman considered the most celebrated living photographer, your house, what would she find and what would she want to capture in, in her photo essay? What would they find in your living room? Well, that's a tough question because, you know, I, having grown up in a military family where I traveled every couple of years, I actually am a child of the road. I, I do love to, you know, get out and be on the road and, and hence this this road trip, so to speak. I grew up uh, driving across this country Growing up, my family couldn't afford, you know, hotel rooms. And so we, we slept in the car and we, and we drove. And, you know, my father was stationed in Fairbanks, Alaska. And then we'd drive down to Texas. <laughs> you know, he'd be stationed in Texas. And then we, you know, Bloxy, Mississippi. So I've, I've traveled pretty extensively through this country. And I, my children have, have sort of, you know, forced me to, to settle down, which is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. You know, I think I built my last home for my children. And I'm trying this idea of staying put, um, <laughs> you know, and giving them a consistent, you know, life. But the home I have now is really something for for them to live in. And uh, it's a very child-friendly atmosphere. Do you have your favorite photographs hanging around? Or is it a place where you get away from that and you're not Annie the Great Photographer? I, I don't hang my own photographs in my house. I, I can't afford the art that I really, really love. But when my children started drawing early on, I, I love their their work because it seems to me that all we try to do as adults is try to get back to being children in our <laughs> painting um, and I started you know hanging their you know their work all over the house and my children's drawings and paintings are so magical and so wonderful and when they come home from school with the drawings I'm, I'm framing them so that's what's in the house is the artwork is, is my children's and then I, I do have a very nice little photography collection of the photographers I've always admired I have some Lynn Davises in the living room. I have Cartier-Bresson, Robert Frank, an Avedon. So that's what that's what the children are growing up with. So you're trying to create a, a nest. You're trying to settle down now. I am. I am trying. I am yeah. trying. Um, you sure look like a woman of the road on your photo in the book here, with you in the boots in the back of the pickup there. Yeah, I'm more. I am more <laughs> that person. I. I mean, these road trips for the children. You know, taking you know the children to Niagara Falls and. Uh, you know, I, I do plan this summer to take them out to do, you know, the Midwest. And that's what I've, that's what I've been dying to do is, is getting them out on the road with me. How old are they? They're young. I have uh, the, the twins are six and uh, Sarah is just turned 10. Maybe they can give the photographer a, a fresh excuse to look at things. They will. They And they <laughs> did with, with this book. They will. I'm older now, you know, mm. and uh, to... To look at these places now and, and trying to understand, you know, how to, you know, how to settle down. I mean, what's interesting is, is Annie Oakley, in the book, there's um, two pages dedicated to a photograph of her trunk. I love it. Because, yeah. you know, she tried to settle down, but she, she never did. She, she lived on the road. So when you look at Annie Oakley's trunk, you can think of a lifetime on the road yourself. I do. I, I like being home more than ever. And I, as to your question about what does my home look like? It really is something I, I kind of built for my children, for them to grow up in. 
It must be interesting for you now with two twins at six years old and another child at 10. Think of the life experience you've had, and now you're kind of looking at what kind of life experience they're going to have. Well, I can't wait to take them out driving to, to see this country because it's a, it's a great country. There's a Robert Frost manuscript at the, the beginning of the, of the book that I discovered at the Jones Library in, in Amherst, and it's, it's uh, the poem in Miles to Go Before I Sleep and Miles to Go Before I Sleep. And it's on the dedication page for my children, you know, to Sarah, Susan, and Samuel, with the idea that we have lots more to do. And as you thumb through this book, I'm thumbing through it right now, what do you see? If you just thumb through the book and you look at the, the beautiful images that you've collected in this book, what, what's the bigger picture here? Well, I, I think um, I didn't quite see it until um, many of the pictures were hung at a small book signing in New York. And and I was looking at them up, and I and I realized it really, it really was a search, and the search is not over. And you know, don't ask me what I'm searching for, but you know, just to see how people lived and and what they did with their lives, and people that I I cared about, and uh, just to collect notes. I was I was just thinking about the old faithful picture, which I it took me two days to get those pictures. Um, again, I'm thinking about Ansel Adams, and what he must have done, what their early pioneer photographers did when they first went out and discovered these places. Wow, these images tie things together and they keep things alive. They're everywhere. I mean, you know, these small historical places that they give you such resonance and, and give you a lot of insight into who we are and what to do with ourselves next. <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm a huge fan of photography. I, I, I'm just so lucky that I get to do something I really love to do. And this project was something that I needed to do to sort of take care of, take care of my work, you know, to, to feed it, to feed my heart and my soul and, 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 and put it back into my portrait work. Annie Leibovitz, thanks for joining us. Best wishes with your work and finding that nest at home. Thank you. Sweet may the fiddle sound, the banjo play, the old hoedown dancers swing round and round when I'm far away. Well, may the world go, the world go, the world go. Well, may the world go when I'm far away. Fresh may the breezes blow, clear may the streams flow, blue above, green below when I'm far away. Well, may the world go, the world go, the world go. Well, may Next, we open our phones at 877-333-7425 to check in with you, our listeners. Tell us where you've been or where you'd like to go for a truly meaningful and personal experience. Travel tips in important places, that's just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. I'm Rick Steves, and it's fun every once in a while to take a moment and just check in with our travelers and uh, share some ideas, some discoveries, and answer a few questions. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Elaine's on the phone in Watsonna, Indiana. Elaine, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. How you doing? Doing very well. Uh, what are your thoughts about travel? I actually love to travel. haven't had much opportunity, but when I did get a chance to go someplace, I went to my ancestral homes in Scotland. And even though I had never been there before, it felt like I had been there my whole life. I was wondering, have you ever had that kind of an experience in any of your travels? Well, actually, I have, because my uh, grandparents came from Norway. I always like to think how, okay, I'm a Scandinavian, and when I'm in Denmark or Sweden, I feel like I'm with my kin, you know. But as soon as I cross the border into Norway, it's sort of magical. All of a sudden, I go, whoa, these are my people. These are my people, these Norwegians. Uh, I remember my relatives there took me to my uh, great-grandmother's home, and it's a humble little home on a fjord. And when I saw that, it is quite something, isn't it, to look at a house and think, your your mother's mother was lived in that house and so on. Tell us about your experience in Scotland. Well, I went to visit all the various uh, towns that my family had been in, but the, the two houses that actually are still living or still existing are actually I'm descendant of the kings, so it's Sterling Castle and Edinburgh Castle. But the moment I walked in the castle, it felt like that was something that I had, I, I knew every brick, I knew every window, every stick of furniture. It was just an overwhelming feeling like I had been there before. And I, it, it's the first day I had ever been there. So I was just amazed. And, and the whole town, it just felt right to be there. 
I just didn't want to come home afterwards, you know? That is mind-blowing. You went to Stirling Castle and you felt like you've always been there and it's where your ancestors were ruling Scotland from? Yes. Ha! <laughs> tell, me, tell me more. What did you do? First, I, I walked around on my own. Then there was, they had a little tour, about a 15-, 20-minute tour I took. Then when I went in the Great Hall, it's like I, I knew exactly where everything was supposed to, to be. and I knew all the rules of uh, how to sit in the hall and what chair should be sat in by what women and, and what men were supposed to sit where and why they were supposed to sit there. It's like that knowledge had always been with me, even though I had never read that before. So did you step behind the, the ropes and did you, did you tell the guards, it's okay, it's my place? <laughs> I actually said that to somebody. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, they let me sit at the throne, at the head of the, the hall. And I was, it, it just, the, it felt like the chair was meant for me to sit there. It just felt so comfortable. Oh. Well, that was nice that they actually heard you out and then let you be royal for the day, huh? I thought it was great. Who are the, the royals in Scotland? Who are your ancestors? Um, descended on both sides of my family from Robert the Bruce. Whoa. Now, and you had yeah. the same feeling at the Edinburgh Castle. Exactly. Tell us about that. Well, when I went to look into the royal apartments, only one was open, and I knew that wasn't right because I knew there was three other levels that I could go to, and I knew what room was where, etc., even though I didn't have an actual plan of, the, of what rooms, etc. And so I asked somebody, well, I want to go to this specific room. And they said, oh, we can't because the roof collapsed. <laughs> and uh. After 700 years, the uh. roof collapsed. And so it's like, well, it, is this room actually in this spot? And they said, well, yes, it is. I'm like, well, that's amazing. And I told them the story I just told you. And, and they're like, wow, I thought that was amazing. I'm talking with Elaine, Queen of Scotland from Watana, Indiana. <laughs> Are you going to go back? Uh, if I ever get the chance, I am definitely going back, and I'm going to stay more than two weeks next time. Yeah, if I, if I had your connections, I would too. Yeah. I'm afraid I, 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 don't, I, don't, I don't get that royal it. feeling when I'm in Norway. I get a feeling like I was a peasant. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it wasn't a royal feeling. It was just a, a sense of home. You know? That's a like, beautiful that's, thing. Yeah, no, that sense know? of home... I I feeling, but I've never had the, the, that deja vu like that. And I think you could use that as a basis for a trip around Scotland because, you know, that was a, the, the whole clan sort of system up there was, was very powerful. And if, and if you're connected that way, oh, man, there's a number of great sites. You could go to some of those old battlefields and, and some of the great sites all over Scotland and, uh, you know, study it and, and, and get great joy and uh, sort of satisfaction from that just personally. Yeah, well, the Bannockburn Battlefield was only about a mile away from Stirling yeah. Castle, so I did get a chance to go there. Yeah. I had similar feelings there, too. Well, when you go south into England, don't tell them from what family you come. <laughs> Be very careful not. about that, okay? Elaine <laughs> from Watanai, Indiana, thanks so much, and uh, enjoy your next trip to Scotland. Thanks, Rick. Okay, bye. Bye. And Ryan's on the line in La Cañada, California. Ryan, what's on your mind? Well, uh, my son has severe food allergies to certain tree nuts, uh, cashews and pistachios and hazelnuts, and to uh, fish. And uh, we took a trip last summer to France and to Italy, and to we came back through Switzerland, and uh, we got translations with some native speakers of the same kind of questions we ask when we're here in America, and we felt that we were well prepared. But... Still, the, the language barrier, even though we had practiced, it, it left us feeling more nervous than we would have been uh, here in America. And I'm just wondering, is there, uh, do you have any experience with this sort of thing? Or, you know, is there some other thing we could have done or some other way to approach this that maybe would have felt, made us feel a little more uh, comfortable with the whole thing? Yeah, well, for decades, we've taken people to Europe on our tours, and when they have allergy concerns, we recommend that they write it on a 3x5 on a card and have it written in very clear uh, you know, um, instructions in the foreign language, obviously, written by right. a local person. And if you can make friends with the person at your hotel, uh, you know, they will speak English well enough and there'll be native speakers in that language. And then make it really clear. Uh, you know, uh, absolutely no nuts or anything with nut products or I will die, something like right. that. And then because I find a lot of waiters in Europe, they kind of, they don't really take you very seriously. And if you say right. you're a vegetarian they think uh, you don't eat much meat, you know. But you have to make it really clear. And the only way to do that, considering the language barrier and considering how 
overwhelmed they are in, in working and so on, is to have it on a piece of paper written very clearly by a local and show it to them. If that doesn't work, um, uh, you know, then you're really in a bind. <laughs> well, I guess that's what we carry the EpiPen for, but you hate to yeah. have to go to that. Yeah, you, you really need to do that if you've got a serious dietary concern. I mean, if you just, you know, if, if you like your, uh, you know, if, if you have something that's just a preference, it's not such an important issue. But for a lot of people, it's a real serious issue. And, you know, again, those, the, the wait staff that you'll encounter, they're so rushed, they're so distracted, they'll hardly take you seriously. I would remind you that all over Europe there's very good... Um, healthy kind of restaurants. They might be uh, vegetarian restaurants or vegetarian restaurants that really pride themselves in being sensitive to people's dietary concerns, and you'll not compromise in the quality of cuisine, and you'll have a kitchen that, that really uh, understands that this is important to you and that it's a valid concern. You might want to seek out those kind of restaurants so you can eat well and not have the anxiety of wondering, did they understand what my concerns are? Yeah, that was the issue, was, I mean, that sort of feedback you have when you're talking to somebody in your native language, you feel, okay, I know they, I know they got it, and that, that we even had it written out, and they would sort of nod and even take it back into the kitchen, but we still felt like, yeah. oh, boy, this, I, I would really too. get it. I would, too. Yeah. They don't, they just, they, you know, a lot of service people in Europe think they know what you want better than, than you do, and you're right. going to get it. Uh, you know, you, you go to a steakhouse in Tuscany, and you have a nice can on a, a beef steak, and... You can say you want it done longer or shorter, but it's, there's only one way they do it. Seven minutes on one side, seven minutes on the other side, 15 minutes later you get your steak on your table, you know. Right. So good luck. Um, <laughs> uh, thanks very much. Yeah. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Bye. We're checking in with listeners like you on Travel with Rick Steves at 877-333-7425 to see what's on your mind as you make your latest travel plans. Joe's on the line in Centerburg, Ohio. Joe, thanks for your call. Uh, great to talk to you. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, my wife and I are going to go to France next year, and we've learned about, just through some various sources, a chateau called Fontainebleau, about an hour south or so of um, Paris. And I noticed you don't even mention it in your uh, France book, and it's supposed to be, in some people's opinions, even better than Versailles. And I'm wondering, uh, do you have a different opinion, or is it a ho-hum site, or are there some negatives about it? Do you have any comments? Joe, thanks for the, uh, pointing that out. I was just there this last season, and it's going to be covered in very good style in the new edition of our book. It was just an oversight. Oh. Uh, it's a great chateau, and they've got a new museum there that gives you the very best look at Napoleon that you can find anywhere in France, I think, because in a lot of ways that was Napoleon's chateau, or his palace. Uh, so the Chateau Fontainebleau, and it's, like you said, it's about an hour southeast of Paris by train. It's very easy to get to. It's in a wonderful uh, small town, so you get a good look at the countryside of, uh, you know, small town France as well. The chateau itself, I was blown away by the lavish royal halls and architecture. And it goes through centuries of, you know, the story of, of the kings and, and the queens and, of course, Napoleon, the emperor of France. So it's one of the great chateaus to see. Also outside of Paris, uh, everybody goes to Versailles because it's the most famous. But in a lot of ways, Versailles seems a little empty. There's not a lot of actual artifacts or furnishings in the rooms like you'll find in other chateaus. And it's just, you know, it's a, it's a stampede of tourists. You've got to go to Versailles because it's so important historically. Uh, but I think the Chateau at Fontainebleau is wonderful, as is Vaux-le-Vicomte. Those are the three palaces or chateaus that you should see as a side trip from Paris. Fontainebleau, and that is the uh, uh, Napoleon's palace. Vaux-le-Vicomte, which was the most sort of cohesive ensemble of architecture, uh, beautiful, lavish interior design, and great gardens. Uh, and when you go to this chateau and you go up to the very top of the dome and you look out over these expansive gardens, then you realize who had the money to build this thing? I mean, it was unthinkable to build that kind of a lavish palace on that lavish scale back in a days when, when the queen was saying, let them eat cake, you know, and it was a financier. It was somebody, sort of a, an old regime equivalent maybe of um, some of these uh, fat cats in the, in the banking industry right now. He had his hands on the purse strings of France, and he was able to build this incredible chateau. And then, of course, Versailles. In a lot of ways, Volevicomp was the prototype of Versailles. The guy who designed Volevicomp, the king saw that and said, boy, that looks impressive. Why don't you come on over to my uh, hunting chateau and turn it into a grand palace? 
Does that make any sense to you? Oh, it makes a lot of sense, and I really thank you for the feedback. Uh, yeah. Keep up the good work. We like to hear about these places. Hey, Joe, when you're thinking about chateaus in France, remember, if you're based in Paris, those are the big three, Fontainebleau, Volavicomp, and Versailles. But if you've got a couple extra days, go to the Loire Valley. It's just a little further to the south and make a sort of a headquarters there. I think uh, there's two sides of the Loire, Amboise is good for one area, and then Chinon is good for the other. And from those two bases, you can visit most of the chateaus in what is classic kind of chateau country along the Loire Valley, where Leonardo da Vinci chose to uh, spend his last year, so it's a, he had good taste, you know. Uh, it's a nice uh, town to make for your headquarters, A-M-B-O-I-S-E, and from there, it's very easy to jump out and, and see the most famous chateaus, uh, Chambord, Chananso, Azalea Redoux, right. and so on. And then when you go uh, a little further away, you get to Chinon. So your next visit to the Loire makes Chinon, C-H-I-N-O-N, your headquarters, and you can visit a number of fascinating sites uh, with that as your base. Wonderful. All right. Hey, I thanks. appreciate th- the feedback. Thanks for calling. Thanks. Happy travels. Bye-bye. Paul's on the line in Oxnard, California. Paul, thanks for your call. I found out very recently doing uh, some genealogical research on my family that uh, even though for years my family thought they were from Germany, it turns out they were actually from Alsace in France. And I'd, I'd like to go visit France for a few weeks to kind of try to find some of my ancestors, but it's not a part of France you generally hear a lot about. You hear a lot about Paris and the Provence and the um, Mediterranean coast, but not in that area. So I'd like, kind of like some advice from you as far as places I can go and visit and things I should see in that area. Yeah, well, Alsace is that part of uh, France that borders Germany. And uh, it's a sort of an interesting mix of German and French culture because historically the Germans think the Vosges Mountains should be the border and then uh, the French people think the Rhine River should be the border. So the area between the Vosges Mountains and the Rhine River changes hands after every war, it seems like. And for a time it was German and for a time it was French. And a lot of Germans say their ancestry is Germany and they're saying Alsace. And, well, Alsace was part of Germany, a hundred years ago. So uh, you'll find when you do go to Alsace, it's a fascinating mix of French and German culture. They serve uh, sauerkraut with fine sauces. Uh, you'll find people who, uh, you know, they, they, they speak French, but uh, they've got German names, or they've got a French first name and a German last name, and so on. So you'll find plenty of German culture there, and it's, uh, it's a great place to travel. I think it's a beautiful excuse to go to Alsace. It's one of my favorite parts of France. The only thing, you know, not great about Alsace, if you're going to France, is that it's not classically French. It's you could say it's more German than French, but go there, and, and that would be a great chance to connect with your heritage. Okay. Is there anything in particular on Alsace you, you recommend that I really try to visit while I'm in the area, any particular cities? Or Yeah, well, there's great World War I history. There is uh, great vineyards. It's the, the Rue du Vin, the wine road of France, in a lot of ways, for white wine. You've got a big choice is, are you going to go in a big city, a medium city, or a small town? The big city, Strasbourg, People like it. I don't like it because I would rather go to a small town, Colmar. I absolutely love Colmar, C-O-L-M-A-R. It's, uh, it's got a, a petite Venice, a little Venice quarter with canals and characteristic houses. It's got incredible art. In the Unterlinden Museum, there's the Grunewald uh, Eisenheim altarpiece, which is just a mind-blowing uh, polyptic. It's a many-paneled altarpiece on, on hinges, and it takes you right through the whole Easter story. There's also a, a just some sumptuous art uh, in the um, Dominican church nearby. Colmar uh, is just a town where you're going to enjoy great cuisine. And again, it's it's sort of a mix of Germanic and French cuisine. It's a lot of fun. Lovely uh, white wine and a proud heritage. And then the other choice, you might want to go to a tiny town. And there are little characteristic, picture-perfect little towns nearby. Rickfear is one that's very popular. Kaisersburg is uh, famous because it's uh, Albert Schweitzer's hometown, and it's also very nice. Um, I personally would stay in Colmar and then spend a day uh, biking or taking a minibus tour or, or just driving through the countryside and en- enjoy that sort of salt-of-the-earth example of how varied and diverse uh, this country of France is. Rick, you mentioned that there's some World War One sites that might be interesting. When I was in college, I studied the First World War, and I would be interested in seeing some of those things. But is there anything particular in that general region you'd recommend? Well, of course, that region was really scarred by World War One, and that's where the Western Front was. For years, the Germans and the French just butted their heads up against each other. Uh, their leaders were waging a battle of attrition. Calcula- you know, They knew they'd take 
terrible losses, but they figured their enemy would bleed white and drop first. So year after year, they would just bash their heads against each other, and, and tens of thousands of people would die uh, routinely in this battle as uh, the trenches were dug, and, and it was quite a stalemate. Uh, the best way to get a look at that is to go to Verdun. Verdun is kind of halfway between this region and Paris. When you're driving from Alsace into Paris, Verdun is a, just a very convenient stop. And there's an ossuary there, which is a huge memorial to the hundreds of thousands of people who died, and it's just packed with bones. And then surrounding it is a vast cemetery. We have images of these iconic uh, World War II D-Day kind of cemeteries. Well, at Verdun, you see uh, a vast World War I cemetery, and it's just a very powerful, powerful experience to go to Verdun. There are you know, huge areas that are still kind of no man's land where they don't recommend you go because there might be undetonated bombs. There's other areas that look like a lunar landscape, still look like a lunar landscape nearly 100 years after the bombardment. So Verdun, it's the best, you know, Western Front single stop you could have. Also, there are Maginot Line sites to see in several locations in Alsace that you could look into. Just look up the Maginot Line. And if you happen to be in the region up in Bruges in Belgium, there's a Flanders Fields Museum. It's about 40 miles southwest of Bruges, and uh, it's uh, very uh, near and dear to the hearts of the British people because they lost 60,000 people there or so. And uh, there are tours from Bruges that take you out to Flanders Fields. Lots of powerful memories of World War I, and as the uh, 100-year anniversary of World War I approaches, um, a lot of people will be taking a look at that. So it's a good thing to keep in mind when you plan your trip to Alsace. Well, thank you very much. It sounds like you've got a lot to look forward to. Ah, it's a great thing to look forward to, and best wishes on your travels. Let us know how it goes. Okay, thanks. Thanks, Paul. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton and by Sarah McCormick at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks to our colleagues at KUOW in Seattle for studio help today. Links to our guests and audio archives are in the radio section of ricksteves.com. We'll see you next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by the European Union Delegation to the USA. The European Union received the 2012 Nobel Peace Prize for promoting peace, human rights, and democracy. Information available at euintheus.org. Each year, Rick Steves' tour guides take free-spirited travelers on escorted tours all over Europe, one small group at a time. This year, you can choose from three dozen exciting itineraries covering the best of Europe from Ireland to Istanbul, Paris to St. Petersburg, and practically everywhere in between. For a free catalogue and Rick's Tour Experience DVD, visit the tour pages at ricksteves.com.